It has been 50 years since Dr. King put pen to paper from a Birmingham jail to speak his truth. A truth that still lives within. A truth we continue to fight. If there wasn't a protest right now, who wants to have the conversation? How would it start? These moments to be courageous, they never come at a time of convenience. At some point, it's bigger than sports. You're only a football player for a certain amount of your time. For the rest of the time, you're a human being, and you want to be able to unite people. And for us, that's what it really was about. The struggle continues because our struggle doesn't change. Because injustice breeds here. Because injustice never left. As Dr. King reminded us all, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Democracy was designed to put our dignity to test, as we must continue to do so in a manner that reflects who we truly are. So for the equal treatment of all humans here in America, we fight, but with open hearts and not closed fists, with remembrance and not retaliation, to oppose what is not right, to resist what they love that overpowers the hate. Have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in America. Even if our motives are misunderstood, silence is not an option because silence is no longer golden. We will reach the goals of justice, equality, and fairness because the goal of all Americans is simple. Freedom. Freedom. The historical Arthur Harold Parker High School Concert Choir here in Birmingham, Alabama. Hello everyone, I'm Carrie Champion and welcome to the Undefeated Special Conversation. Dear Black Athlete, 50 years after Dr. King's assassination, we still find ourselves at a watershed moment in this country when it comes to civil rights. So what better place than Birmingham, Alabama, to discuss social activism and the Black Athlete? It's also the place where Dr. King led one of the most pivotal campaigns in the movement, along with writing that letter from the Birmingham jail. The letter, written in April 1963, was to fellow clergymen who were of good intentions, but they were critical of King's presence and his method. In the letter, he eloquently outlines his plan, his purpose. There was also the hope that they would understand and be moved to seek justice as well. The words and leadership of Dr. King are so critical back then and seemingly just as important more than five decades later. Today, we will try to unpack some of the issues that affect the black athlete. That's protests, policing, and leadership. Current and former athletes, influencers, they will lend their voice to these topics. Up first, NBA legend Kobe Bryant sits with our Jamel Hill to talk about leadership, the black athlete, and the importance of those who help lead the way. How important do you think you know, people like Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali have been in advancing the general agenda of America? Well, crucial. You know, what we stand for, what America stands for, you know, the cultural melting pot that is America, the diversity that is America. I mean, it's, it's all about moving that culture forward. And from Muhammad Ali to Bill Russell, I mean, they, that's what they've done. That's what they've pioneered. And uh, it's our responsibility to try to carry that forward. And, and, you know, and the good thing about it, too, in this age of multimedia is that we all have different vehicles to which we can do that. Most black athletes, there's a certain duality. You have this platform and you're, you have this success that you have, but you're also still a, a black man in America. How did you balance that throughout your career? And how are you balancing that now? Well, you just got to do what's right. You got to do what's right. You got to stand up for what it is that you believe in. The struggle always seems to be of what is available to you now. 
um, as opposed to what's the right thing to do for years to come, right? And I think the easiest thing that we can do is just do what is right now, even if it may seem uncomfortable, even if it doesn't seem like it's publicly accepted, you gotta do what's right. Those were the thoughts of soon-to-be NBA Hall of Famer Kobe Bryant. We also thought it would be appropriate since we are celebrating Dr. King in one of the towns that was pivotal to the movement to have some athletes write letters in that very same vein that Dr. King wrote the letter from the Birmingham jail. They wrote heartfelt letters to their family, their friends, and even their community. Up first, Tampa Bay Rays pitcher Chris Archer in a letter to his parents. I was playing dodgeball during recess in grade school, <laughs> and I'm on a roll. I nail a kid. As he walks defeated off the field, he looks back at me and shouts words that rock me to my core. I don't care that you beat me, Blackie. I stopped dead in my tracks, shaken and confused. That was the precise moment that I realized that I was black. By the time that I had looked down, I realized that color was now a part of my life that I could not avoid. I'm a firm believer that all people are born inherently good, and it takes a negative environment to shape such viewpoints. Born into a biracial family and raised by my white grandparents, I was fortunate to grow up in an embrace all environment. To this day, I hold no grudge to that kid on the playground. He had no clue that his words carried so much hate. These weren't his own thoughts. More so, he was programmed to think this way based off his environment. My parents always taught me to love everyone equally, despite race, religion, creed, or sexual orientation. And with that being said, I have three words for my parents. I love you. Dear Black Athlete, on the panel with us today is Chris Archer, Tampa Bay Rays pitcher. Uh, you just heard that lovely letter. Next to him is David Williams, one of the first African-American 80s athletic directors in the SEC conference. And then we have Shaq. You may know him as James Harris. Before there was Doug Williams, there was Shaq, the first African-American NFL quarterback to start a season opener. Thank you so much for being here with Thank us you. today. Uh, Chris, I start with you first. Your letter, um, very powerful. Uh, Blackie, that was the very first time you knew you were black. Talk to me about that incident and what made you want to write that particular letter. Uh, well, I had a number of things that I wanted to discuss. And one thing that really stuck out was when did I realize I was black? I think nobody's born with color in their, in their mind. We are born uh, so innocent and so free of all of that. And uh, one of my goals in speaking to kids is to get back to that youthful innocence and speaking to adults too, is getting back to that youthful innocence. And I want to share my story and maybe other people could relate, see how it affected me and hopefully change minds. James, I talked to him about being difficult uh, in his environment, but I couldn't even imagine being a quarterback in the 70s and what it was like for you because there are so many stories and we know about that position um, being kept away from an African-American, from a black man. Uh, tell us about your experience in the NFL. I think I represented the opportunity for so many others. And growing up, uh, I had dreams just like every other person. I wanted to be a professional athlete. But every time I dreamed, it turned into a nightmare. And there were very few pl uh, playing quarterback. I had to realize that the reason why, and that was because we, we weren't supposed to be smart enough. We weren't supposed to be able to lead. Our character was questioned. So I had to make sure that I can go into the NFL and be able to not allow those things be the reason that I didn't make it. How did you lead your teammates, who I assume didn't always respect you or your leadership? Uh, that was the biggest challenge for me. You know, I'd been a, a leader on every level, but when I first got into the NFL, I never had conversations with white people, a full conversation. So stepping into the huddle and having the call to play and uh, get them to respond was, was the biggest challenge that I had. Uh, David Williams, I need to talk to you. I know that you ran track uh, in college. Uh, you are now, again, an African-American AD. And, and when I think of your position, I think of how you've been able to see, not only as, your, as a player yourself, but how has the black athlete evolved? Well, I think the one thing we have to look at is... Uh, 
at least in some sports, the numbers have increased. So if you go back to James's point when he was uh, the first black quarterback and Chris being one of the few black pitchers, now in some sports we do have a lot more black athletes. But what we have to be very careful is not to confuse change with progress. And so the mere fact that we have numbers in that in that category does not mean that we've made all of the progress. So how many black coaches do we have? How many black ADs do we have? How many black presidents of colleges? How many black commissioners? How many black presidents? So that's what we have to keep working on. You know, it's very interesting. Uh, in 2018, I'm a little tired of being the first and being the only. Let me show you a bit of non-progress. Do you realize there are more white males coaching women's basketball than black females? That's not progress. Uh, I think one way that we can progress is changing the way we think. Um, as parents, as influencers in the community, I think we should really harp on education. What's the biggest challenge, uh, Chris, before we wrap, what's the biggest challenge for the black athlete today? I think our whole lives were told that we can only entertain. Uh, we, we can't be, or it's not necessarily that we can't be, but we're just never told about Every team has a medical field. You can be a doctor, a physical therapist. Uh, every team has a legal aspect to it. Every team has an economist. You can be involved in sports than just on the field entertainment. And it's actually more lucrative because the window of opportunity is much longer if you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or, or in that, a journalist or anything. Um, I actually had a close friend who was playing basketball in college super smart guy, went into the medical industry and started looking, okay, the odds of me going to the NBA are very, very slim, less than 1%. The odds of me becoming a doctor are much greater than that. He went with his greatest odds. And I think educating the parents, the parents knowing that and saying, okay, you do have this athletic scholarship, let's leverage that and use that as a conduit to, to become more educated and be, to become more academic, I think that's where it starts. Then we start to see true change because now we are in positions of power um, outside, of, outside of just being on the field. Chris Archer, David Williams, James Harris, Shaq, because we're best yeah. friends. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. As we mark the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King, we will continue to acknowledge the relationship between Dr. King and the city of Birmingham, in particular, his eloquent letter written while he was in a Birmingham jail. This is our special presentation of Dear Black Athlete with some of today's best young athletes putting their voices to King's words. Healthy discotheque can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. And now, this approach is being termed extremist? So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be the extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? These are not normal circumstances, and you don't need us to explain to you the reasons why. If there wasn't a protest right now, who wants to have the conversation? We will not be divided by this. We got a group of men in there, man, that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, races, creed, ethnicities, and religions. That's football. What is sad is the dissension between certain players in the Players Coalition, that being Malcolm Jenkins and also Eric Reed. The whole conversation is centered around the form of protest that players are choosing to engage in, that Colin Kaepernick started. It's not about unity, it's about inequality. The message was not the protest. The message, according to players, was one of judicial and law enforcement reform. The NFL has proposed partnering with players to affect social justice improvement, offering almost $100 million to fund causes that they feel are critical to African-American communities. There has been some movement on this issue when you go back and think about where this was just two years ago. full-page ad from the veterans group AmVets with the hashtag Please Stand. The NFL refused the group's $30,000 buy because the league says the Super Bowl program is no place for a political statement. We're trying to focus in on things that help us grow and develop and not things that tear people down and divide us. Back in September, there was an online survey of over a thousand adults by the global strategy route. So they basically asked for the perspective on the NFL protest. Only 39% of those polled approved of it. 51% disapproved of it. 
while 10% were neutral. But when you look inside of those numbers, 72% of African Americans who participated in the survey agreed with the protest, while 31% of whites agreed. In other words, the approval of the NFL protests were seemingly divided among racial lines. That's no surprise because the method hijacked the message. Again, NBA legend Kobe Bryant on the NFL protest. Obviously, one of the biggest issues in sports was the national anthem peaceful protest that took place uh, with the NFL players. If you were still playing, would that have been something you would have participated in? I would have participated in it for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I would have gotten some black for it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And I think what Colin's message was a very simple one. His police brutality needs to stop. You need to take a look at that. It's very hard um, as a black athlete to just simply sit here and say, you know what? We're comfortable. We made it. We have it made. It's okay. We don't, we don't need to jump into this thing. It's too much controversy. We don't need it. Is that the right thing to do? No, it's not. When you look at everything that he's done um, and everything that he's been through, what kind of influence do you think that's had on other black athletes? Well, I think it gives a sense of urgency. You know, it wasn't like the issues weren't there already. When Colin initiated what he did, it brought a sense of urgency, a sense of call to action, immediacy that wasn't there before. It brought it to a national level, uh, something that cannot be ignored anymore. And uh, I think it gave a sense of urgency. We need to do something, and we need to do something now. The sample size in the survey, and again, what Kobe is talking about, is an experience from different people. Again, we'll have athletes and influencers suggest that blacks are overwhelmingly supportive of the protests, while those who don't understand the message, they're just confused by the method, which is kneeling. So to that end, uh, we welcome in former NFL player Anquan Bolden and the undefeated uh, senior writer Jason Reed. Uh, let's talk about kneeling in the NFL, the NFL protest and beyond. And I'll start with you, Anquan. Uh, you no longer play in the league. You are a part of the Players Coalition. We have discussed that. Do you think that the protests are over? As long as players have an opportunity to prote- protest, they will. Um, but one of the things that I want to encourage the guys is to have action behind your protest. So you can protest for however long you want to. But unless you have actual action behind that protest, then you're protesting for nothing. You can't just have protests in perpetuity. There's got to be some type of ask. There's got to be something that you're trying to accomplish with the protest. Anquan and Malcolm Jenkins and other members of the Players Coalition, they had a, a clear agenda. They were going to use protests to try to gain the league's support to affect change through programs that they believe that would help with funding. Do you believe that you were able to define your goal with the Players Coalition and, and the 80 mil, $89 million that the NFL was able to set aside for you? Yeah, I believe that we spelled out exactly the help that we wanted from the NFL. Which was? Well, for us, we understood that the NFL won't end racism in America. But we want to have the NFL's backing when we go speak to different politicians and elected officials about legislation that affects the black community. We also wanted dollars so that we can help fund grassroots efforts in different communities that help the African-American community. With that money, was there an implied or a suggested thought that you all would no longer protest if you received this money? That that was never implied by the NFL to us. But from where I sit, being in the NFL for 14 years, I understand that the NFL is a business. There was no quid pro quo. There was no, we're going to give you this money, so you have to stop protesting. That language is not in this agreement. And while I understand that there are players who felt that this was not what they wanted, that the, the money that the, the league is, is, has offered was not what they felt really needed to be done or they wanted more money. They wanted Colin Kaepernick to be the face of, of the movement, the face of, uh, the face of the part of the movement where the league was actually sitting down with the Players Coalition and saying, okay, we want to partner with you. What should we do? There were players who felt that Colin Kaepernick needed to be at the head of the seat at that table. There were players who felt that Colin Kaepernick needed to get a job. And Wherever you come down on the issue of whether Colin Kaepernick got blackballed or whether or not he should have a job, there were players in the Players Coalition who were trying to do other things. They felt that getting this money from the league, getting this partnership agreement with the league, was the most important thing. And 
a lot of people have said, and you saw it on social media after the, the deal was announced, that, well, it's not enough money, that, that they sold out. Well, my question would be, what dollar figure would have been enough money? They felt that what they wanted to do was get the NFL to partner with them to affect change. And, you know, we're going to see what happens with that, but that's what they wanted to do. And I also think it's important to understand that the, the coalition is an entity outside of the NFL. We have initiatives that are separate from the NFL. We were just asking for support from the NFL to help in some of the initiatives that we were pursuing. We understand that the NFL is not going to agree with us with everything that we do. But that doesn't stop us from pursuing the initiatives that we have in front of us. And Quan, it sounds like you uh, and, and your other members of the Players Coalition feel as if if you go through legislation, you can make change. And then there was another group, perhaps, that thought apply more pressure to make the change, put the pressure on the NFL owners so that they could lead in that way. Eric Reed said this when you all initially started uh, this Players Coalition. Eric Reed on money donated by the NFL and what it means. I feel like I've been misled. I won't accuse Malcolm of directly lying to me, referring to Malcolm Jenkins, because I don't think he's that type of guy. But I will say he's misled us. And shoot, if that's what lying is, well then, that's what it is. Why is there this belief that you all as players can't work together and someone has misled you all? I don't, I don't know why that is. Um, but I think you have a number of players that understand that it's not the NFL's job to end racism. That was never in the back of my mind. All I wanted was support from the NFL to help us make a change in the African-American community. We've sat back for far too long and watched things that we don't agree with happen in our communities. Whether the NFL agrees with us on certain initiatives or not, we're gonna continue to work in the African-American community. Let's talk about beyond the protests, and I want to bring in our Jamel Hill on this. Uh, you've covered this, you've written about this at length. There are clearly two different camps here, but we are now beyond the protest, or at least we think we are. Uh, how do you see the season playing out, this upcoming season playing out, and if in fact, will we see more protests? Here's the thing, unless they put it on the NFL agenda and make this a hard and fast rule that you cannot kneel, I think that the players, there's enough players in the league who still feel insulted by the league's response to it, um, who still feel like that they're trying to be controlled and they don't want to be silenced. And Eric Reed is one of these players and he not only has a lot of influence, but I think that there's just other guys that this means so much to them. So I don't expect them to stop kneeling. As long as Colin Kaepernick is not in the league, this will be a constant issue hanging over uh, the league for a long time. Jamela is absolutely right. What we kept hearing was they're just going to change the game operations manual and have the players stay inside the locker room during the playing of the national anthem. If that occurs, what's going to happen is one of the main tools that players use to apply pressure to the system will be taken away from them. Now, guys can still protest on their own time. They can, they can march in rallies. They can do a lot of things. But the actual ability to protest during the Star Spangled Banner most likely will be taken away from them. And if that happens, then the tool that they had to apply pressure is gone. Well, there not, the is there not another outlet? Could they not find another outlet well, they, they the can find, do so? Carrie, they can find another outlet, but the, the visual, the optics of players taking a knee on the sideline, raising fists, and everything that that brought to the table to apply pressure to the system will just be gone. I think he's right. I felt like Colin Kaepernick should have had a job. The thing we have to be aware of is if you're willing to take a stand, you have to be willing to deal with the consequences, whether right or wrong. And like I said, I was behind Colin with taking the knee. The way that we may differ on some things as far as other players is, Am I supposed to not continue to try to help my community because Colin doesn't have a job? Fair, you are not. You are supposed to help your community. That is very fair. But how do you acknowledge Colin at the same time? Or is that two different things? I think it's completely, two completely different things. Like, I, I, first of all, I don't have a job to give Colin. <clears throat> if I did, he would be employed. Of course. But I can't look 
my community members in the face and say, I didn't help you because I'm waiting on the NFL to give Colin a job. Our work in the black community can't stop because one person is unemployed. Uh, this is a conversation that we can have uh, all day long. Uh, what about Colin? What about our community? Um, there are those who are from the school that if there, if he didn't start this, we really wouldn't be so focused on our community. There are those who are still doing the work in the community as you are. Uh, Anquan Bolton, thank you so much for being here. Jason Reed, thank you for uh, providing the context that you do as usual. Uh, as we wrap up this conversation, we will head to break with the A.H. Parker High School Choir. Visit theundefeated.com for extended discussions, letters from athletes, and other exclusive content. The Undefeated presents Dear Black Athlete. Wednesday, August 28th, 1963. As remembered, an extremely muggy day in Washington, D.C. Athletes like the great Jackie Robinson were on hand at the Lincoln Memorial to hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. talk about his dream. In his dream, Dr. King saw a nation that was ready to come to grips with the painful truth of racial prejudice. Less than one month later, Dr. King spoke in this very church right about where I'm standing to talk about something that was extremely tragic. It was so epic that it would accelerate the movement of civil rights. Dr. King delivered the eulogy for three of the four little girls killed when Ku Klux Klan members put 19 sticks of dynamite underneath the steps of the 16th Street Baptist Church. It was one of a dozen bombings that targeted African-Americans in the 1950s and 60s here in Birmingham. Part of Dr. King's message that day, a little child shall lead them. We remember. These children, unoffending, innocent, and beautiful, were the victims of one of the most vicious and tragic crimes ever perpetrated against humanity. Yet they died nobly. In a real sense, they have something to say to each of us in that death. They have something to say to every Negro who has passively accepted the evil system of segregation and who has stood on the sidelines in a mighty struggle for justice. They say to each of us, black and white alike, that we must substitute courage for caution. That death says to us that we must work passionately and unrelentingly for the realization of the American dream. 14-year-old Addie Mae Collins, 11-year-old Carol Denise McNear, 14-year-old Carol Robertson, and 14-year-old Cynthia Wellesley. These are the four little girls, Western Peace Queens. But there was also a fifth, the lone survivor, Sarah Collins Rudolph. She was 12 at the time, and she became permanently blind in one eye. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor. And it is a privilege to have Sarah Collins Rudolph in our audience today, along with Lisa McNair. She is the sister of Denise McNair. Please, can we stand and honor these ladies? Again, ladies, it is an honor and it is a privilege to have you here today. Uh, your presence here means so much to us, and I know that we all understand what it means. There's so much more for us to talk about. Well, on the night of August 26, 2017, Seahawks defensive end Michael Bennett describes a life-threatening ordeal when he was detained by police. It was the night of the Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor fight. Inside of a crowded hotel, some thought gunshots were fired and people ran to safety. Michael Bennett was one of those who ran, but was later detained by police. And according to him, a Las Vegas police officer pointed a gun near his head. 
Michael Bennett says he was singled out because he was black and he thought that he was going to die because he was black. Here's his letter. Charlene Allows, Michael Brown, Sandra Bland. How can we trust each other when so many of our people are lost? Freddie Gray, Tamir Rice. How can we trust each other when there's been no justice? How can we trust our system when nobody's been to jail? I don't really know how to make somebody value another human's life. Uh, officer has to realize what it is to like to be a black man and what the history of police and, and the black community has been through. And as the African-American community is just trying to build bridges and trying to find ways to communicate with the police. Policing and serving is two different things. I think policing is you come in and you uphold the law. You stopping drug dealers, you, you doing all that stuff. But serving is showing up to the community events and when you see a guy pulled over instead of, you know, wondering if he's selling drugs, maybe his tire is flat. It's just about being human beings at the end of the day. And I think serving is the first thing that we got to do is to serve the community. Here to discuss the fractured relationship between the black community and police officers, we have the chief, the Birmingham chief of police, A.C. Roper. Thank you so much for joining us. And Ravens tight end, Baltimore Ravens tight end, Benjamin Watson. Glad you made it, my friend. Um, I'll start with you first, chief. Why do you think there is such a lack of trust between black people and police? Well, I think it's not something that's new. Uh, when we think about Birmingham, Alabama, and the police department that I have the honor of leading, we've had problems for decades. When Dr. King said in 1963 that Birmingham was the most segregated city in America, well, the police department here was the arms and legs of that most segregated government. And so we did things that weren't right. Uh, we were brutal enforcing the Jim Crow laws. And so even beyond that, uh, black people uh, have not been treated fairly. And so it's not just police departments that have challenges, but when we look at the whole criminal justice system, there's issues there. And we're trying to accelerate change, but it's not coming fast enough. And so there are a group of police chiefs out there that understand that we, we've got to do better. Okay, but some would say that it's simply education. Uh, there is a lack of education probably on both parts, but we have these stereotypes. Police be, believe a certain way when they see a black man who looks a certain way. How do you change that mindset? So what we're doing is it's not just training, which is critically important. So this police department, we've, we've really cemented our efforts in procedural justice. And that's how we interact with the community. And so it talks about how we interact, treating people with dignity and respect, uh, having trustworthy motives, giving people voice. Because quite often, people come at others based on their stereotypes and perceptions and past experiences. And so now we're trying to cut through all the clutter because each call has to stand on its own merit. You can't go to a call thinking that, oh, I'm going to this side of town, so I know what this is going to be about. Because when that officer gets out the car with a stereotype, mm -hmm. and the people standing there have a stereotype about the police officer, it leads to even more mistrust. But I think the bridge has to be built from both sides. Because there are some things we need to do better as police officers, and there are some things that we need our communities to do better. Uh, Benjamin Watson, you are in the NFL, but you are known for having uh, your way with words, if you will. You wrote a book about uh, the problems of racial inequality. When you think about today's relationship, and as the chief just said, it has been this way since the beginning of time, if you will, mm -hmm. the relationship between the black community and police officers. What are the steps that need to be, that you see that need to be made in order to improve that relationship? Well, I'll say the first part of it is understanding that there's a problem. And uh, he alluded to it, but we have in this country a very long history of a contentious relationship with law enforcement. Um, after slavery, when you talk about convict leasing and you talk about those who are, who are pulled on trumped-up charges of vagrancy, and they're sent to these coal mines to die. That happens generations and generations. Douglas Blackman talks about it in his book, and he talks about the fact that this was in some ways worse than slavery because people were just taken away. You never saw them again, and they end up dying in these coal mines. So then you move to, to Jim Crow. You move to lynchings. You move to times where police officers were sitting there watching people being hung. They were leading these mobs. You move all the way through to where we are now we, with social media. We see so many of these things happening mm -hmm. on our on our phones, 
and and all the things that in the community we say were happening there before we can see them right now mm-hmm. and so the first part of it is understanding there is a problem um, there is a disconnect there uh, in the criminal justice system there's a disconnect with how blacks and whites are treated for the same crime there are real issues here so first thing you have to do is understand there's a problem then the second thing how do you fix it well from both sides i think you, you said it from both sides there has to be some sort of respect number one and understanding um, this relationship is fluid. I was talking to a friend uh, who's been in the, the, the police force for, for years and years, and he, he says that the relationship is fluid. You take two steps forward, you take two steps back. Mm-hmm. But how do we create understanding? How do we have police officers in the community who are willing to join in, join hands, sit at the table together, talk about the problems, um, understand that it has to come from both sides, understand there has to be respect when an officer pulls you over, understand that an officer can't have a bias against you simply because of the car you're driving or the color of your skin. So Jamel, uh, you heard Benjamin Watson speak as well as the chief of police. It is the responsibility on the black community to change the relationship. No, I don't think that is too big. A lot of times is where the conversation takes place. I'm looking around this room, right? I see mostly the majority of people here are black. We're used to talking about race, okay? We're used to talking about policing and issues that affect our community. Where are the white people? That's what I wanna know. Because part of the reason why the racial dialogue only has gotten so far is that we need all sides to not just see this as a black problem that these issues are America's problems. And we have been burdened. You cannot ask the people most burdened and oppressed by the system to also fix the problem. It's impossible. It's impossible. So it feels like a lot of times we're spinning our wheels um, because I don't think everybody's equally invested in seeing this go away. Benjamin, I'll turn that back to you. Uh, Why is it inherently the black person or the black people's problem to fix a problem in their community. Well, it, it, it's uncomfortable for those who are, who, who, who's, this is not their actual experience for them to talk about it. And again, I go back to what I said before about the way we're pushed in the corners, largely segregated where we live, where we go, um, where we go to church, where we go to school is segregated as well. Um, I've had a lot of interpersonal conversations with people who are white who care about this issue. And for them, it's going to take them being willing to face ridicule from their group and their sphere in order to talk about some of these things. And and there are plenty of people willing to do it, um, but we usually spin our wheels, as she said, and we usually, we're like, duh, because we talk about this stuff all the time, but for them it's not their experience. And so it takes a lot of maturity to care about something that doesn't affect you personally. I don't care what it is, Um, especially when it comes to this. It takes a lot of maturity. It takes a lot of compassion. um, It it takes a large sense of justice, wanting to get to what's true and what's right, to care about something that doesn't affect you. Benjamin Watson with the message for us, ladies and gentlemen, and A.C. Roper, thank you so much. I appreciate you for being so candid and honest about your time, 10 years as chief of police here in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you guys for joining us here. We appreciate it. Dear black athlete, don't ever forget that you are a citizen too, a part of a community. With being an athlete, there comes privilege and responsibility. Mainly, the responsibility to never stop seeking to understand your neighbor and fellow citizen. More importantly, the ones that aren't exactly like you. This has been my journey as I've stepped into the world of mass incarceration in America and how this phenomenon has unfairly impacted men of color and their families. I've witnessed double standards, unchecked power, and this is happening all in our home, the United States. And so I've been moved to act. The American dream of freedom for all of its diverse citizens will only work if we, the people, Work it. Welcome back. The Undefeated presents Dear Black Athlete. No one and nothing can be great unless it costs you something. I think you see uh, a lot of momentum behind uh, people becoming more socially conscious and doing things about it. And you're seeing real change. Black women only make 63 cents for every white male's dollar. This must 
change. I've seen Penn State, we've seen Baylor. Very similar themes emerge at all these places where protection of image, a program, often becomes more important than protecting the actual students. For too long, women have not been heard or believed if they dared to speak their truth to the power of those men. But their time is up. Their time is up. That is right. The time is up. There is a movement in this country, and it revolves around those three words. Quite simply, the time is up. And the time has never been more important for black women to speak out. Olympic fencer Iftahaj Muhammad understands that all too well. Iftahaj may be known as the first Muslim American to wear a hijab while competing in this country for the Olympics. But she is so much more than that. In her letter, she talks about those who are silent and how they, in fact, contribute to the problem. What I wish I could discuss with my teammates is the importance of allied voices in movements for freedom and justice. Their silence is deafening. Their choice to be safe and sit out of the conversation is as political as taking a knee. Though a white ally may never understand what it is like to be black in America, their voices as American athletes matter. Allies send a powerful message that equality is everyone's fight. Sport is unique in its ability to unite people of different shapes and sizes, ethnicities and faiths, and varied experiences. Over the course of history, this dynamic has played an important role in shaping cultural discourse. We stand at a particularly divisive time in America where black and brown bodies are still denied basic human rights simply for the color of our skin. And we as athletes must not fear using our voices to fight for justice and end bigotry. Let us look to our predecessors who have risked everything, like Muhammad Ali and John Carlos, to the allies who have largely been forgotten by history, like Peter Norman and Mahmoud Abdul Raouf, and to modern heroes like Colin Kaepernick, Serena Williams, Megan Rapino, and so many women in the WNBA. Today and every day, we must continue to fight and recommit ourselves to Dr. Martin Luther King's vision and be inspired by his words. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about the things that matter. Silence is often considered agreement during a time where voices are needed. We welcome in two strong voices to have the discussion about pay equity in sports. Um, and it's basically about being over-talented and undervalued. I don't know if these ladies know anything about that. Um, I welcome in Jamel Hill. I appreciate you being here in the WNBA's at uh, Sinead and Gumake. Ladies, I, I'm watching that and I'm getting fired up in my seat right now. I'm, I'm, I, I heard you say it's about to get lit. Um, I want to talk to you about pay inequity uh, in general, but let's let's keep it with sports. Why is it so important for women, especially in today's movement, to speak up about what they're making? Well, I think we could take a cue from Hollywood um, in the sense that now there's not only just the Time's Up movement, but also it seems to be a time up about being silent about what we're what we're making, what we're facing. And so, um, and you and I know this, Carrie, is that we're starting even in our field to have more conversations with each other about how much we're getting paid. And for a long time, it was considered to be a little bit tacky to do that, but it was also a way for the inequity to continue. And and uh, I have found a lot of strength from, you know, actresses like Ellen Pompeo, who recently shared what she made. And so it allows us to really understand our value. We go through so much in this country uh, as black women, especially because we are really on the bottom rung when it comes to that. 63 cents to every white man's dollar, so says Tracy exactly. Ellis Ross and other studies. Yeah, and, and a lot of times those issues that we face are completely overlooked because, um, and, and this is not to say it shouldn't have been this way, but the fact is this is the reality that in the struggle, the, the individual struggle of black women has often been lost and overlooked because it's been all about the advancement of the race overall and not necessarily about our own individual advancement. So I think right now we're all feeling this moment where we're tired of being quiet for the comfort of others. We're exhausted and we don't want to be tired anymore. I had this conversation with Cheney, um and please enlighten the audience because you are in the WNBA and I do understand that you don't make what a, an NBA players, uh, player would make. But as a rookie, what was your salary? 
as a rookie, you want pre-tax or post-tax? <laughs> you, <can do, laughs> you can do both. <laughs> well, um, I was drafted number one to the Connecticut Sun, and the cap that I could make was about $60,000 coming so, straight out of college. Take a moment and, and em embrace that. $60,000 for the number one draft pick in the WNBA. And today, and the NBA, the number one draft pick, can make somewhere upwards of $4 million. Yeah, and I think a lot of times people hear that and they get shocked. And we're always fighting off trolls on social media because everyone's like, $60,000, that's all you make. Why should you have a voice? But overall, I think with, with our equity, we're not afraid to talk about our pay because it's public knowledge. And even more so, I think women right now, all female athletes are banding together and having conversations sort of like Hollywood is, sort of like we are having um, together, you know, working for the same company. And I see female athletes making this choice because we have to do it because no one else will for us. I mean, you see women's soccer, the national team. You see U.S. women's hockey. They're all fighting for their financial pay, but it's not just women's hockey and, and pay that we're fighting for. You see what happened at Michigan State and how many gymnasts with USA Gymnasts just took down a sexual abuser. I mean, you see uh, the WNBA. We're proud to stand up to promote, you know, try to build this world where races can all be conceived equally. Um, so we're fighting for so many different things, but pay is just one that everyone feels comfortable talking about. And I don't even know if comfortable is, it, is the case in all levels, but is it about the gain in itself not being appreciated women's sports in general not being appreciated it is and I think inherently you know one thing I say everyone's like oh you know there's so many things people want to say about the WNBA in particular and one thing is people bring so many preconceived notions to our league it's easy to go to Twitter, see a WNBA tweet, and e easily put kitchen or something like that. <laughs> I'm that familiar. Often. <laughs> yeah, I'm now, familiar. I know, right? But then when we walk down the street and meet everyday people, they're in awe of us because we're tall, we're strong, we're fierce, we're female, we speak politely. Most, of, most players in our league have their degrees. And I think that's why we're so comfortable speaking to issues because not many leagues every person has graduated almost. I mean, you have to go to the WNBA after three or so years of college. You're like, might as well stay for the fourth and get my degree. Um, so we're a very conscious, woke group of women, and we also care about our communities. And you put that all together, we're not afraid to voice our issues. Everyone knows what we're making. We make more overseas, actually. Um, and we're not home, but we do care about our home. We care about our communities. That's just in our DNA as athletes to be team players. Yeah, and it's not just about the pay inequity. I think it is about the perception of how um, women in sports, how that's perceived. Serena Williams said uh, a while ago that if she were a man, they would have already considered her the GOAT, right? And not just in tennis, but just as one of the best athletes ever. And what I often find that what happens with WNBA players and other leagues and other sports with women is that they use men, uh, comparing them to men's sports becomes a way to humiliate and disgrace women's sports. And that's what I really hate to see. Like, I'm sure you see the tweets about, you know, guys that have been sitting on their couch, you know, for basically the last 10 years, ain't lifted, wait the first, will be quick to run up on her and tell her that they could beat her in a game of one-on-one. Uh -huh. I can is, dunk on you. Right, yeah. which yeah. is completely yeah. disrespectful, yeah. right? Like, um, so I, I think a lot of women also have to deal with that is just being taken seriously uh, by the public uh, and by others. I just had this conversation with Shanae yesterday. I said, please don't devalue yourself. Mm -hmm. Don't compare yourself to your male colleague. You're great in your own right. We do have a problem. That's very honest and valuing ourselves. Um, as we have this conversation right now, there are people listening and watching that are uncomfortable. How do we explain the danger of silence when you talk about money and what you make? And when you're the only one in the room and you look around and there's nothing but your male colleagues, there's a danger, an inherent danger in not speaking up and speaking for yourself. I think we always have to find our voices even when it's hard. And one thing I've realized, especially when it comes to women in positions of power, oftentimes you might be the first one there. And it's sad that we're in 2018 and pe women might still be accomplishing first, especially women of color, especially. But when you're the first one there, you have to make sure you leave your hand open open that door, knock it down, and bring other people up with you. And when it comes to the WNBA in particular, I think that we know that we have our degrees, we make our money overseas, we're willing to risk it all. I mean, because we play during the summertime and we realized that, hey, our biggest splash actually happened when we when we spoke about causes, when we tried to, you know, inspire the young girls around the world to say, hey, we're here, we're powerful, we're women of color, you can be us. And we can use our platforms not just for basketball, but also beyond basketball. So it's very dangerous to be silent, but at the same time, you have to be courageous and know that what you're doing is not just for you, it's for 
for everyone that can come up and can be uplifted through you. Um, but yeah, I think overall silence is very dangerous. But as we progress, you know, especially in the WNBA, you, you were talking about marketing. We have to stay authentic. Oftentimes, when you're that first woman in a unique situation with, with power, you're so competitive getting there. We're all athletes in our own minds. Instead, right now, what you're seeing, women, black girl magic, we're all collaborating. And that is very, very powerful. And um, I think in the WNBA, it's, it's number one to be a, a team player. Mm -hmm. And that is something that we try to touch in all aspects of our life. And um, you, you see people that may not speak with their voices, but they speak with their actions, whether it is wearing a certain t-shirt, whether it is going to a certain school and showing kids that you you know, you know can read and, and then you can be who you want to be. I mean, there's so many different ways to raise your voice without speaking as well. Yeah, we also can't fall for the there can only be one kind of mentality because a, a lot of times we're pitted against each other because we're fighting for the same things, not understanding that if you're here on this platform or if Chanae is here on this platform and doing other things socially in her community that's good for all of us. We can all and eat. We can all eat. Yeah. Absolutely. We can all eat. Yes. Shanae and Gumake, Jamel Hill, thank you so much, sisters. I love you so much for being here. Sorry I appreciate it. Uh, we would like to thank all of you, our live audience, as well as our special guests for being here today. These are important discussions that need to continue. But before we leave, we want to make sure that we acknowledge the support and the hospitality of Pastor John L. Cantalo III and the entire staff and congregation here at the Sixth Avenue Baptist Church. Thank you so much for having us here. It has been an honor and definitely a privilege. Important times, important issues, important conversations. We hope you found this hour as meaningful as we did as we put it together. We leave you as we first began, the A.H. Parker High School Choir. Visit TheUndefeated.com for extended discussions, letters from athletes, and other exclusive content.